Good evening and welcome to the Shear. This is uh, Sunday of Parshish Lamidbar. Let's go straight into our questions. So the first question someone asked me is, you know, is that if you're not able to daven with a minion, there is encouragement to daven at the same time as the minion. Is equally, there is a value of, if you can't get to the minion, but to daven in the shul where, where people daven. So now he's got this dilemma where it's either one or the other. He won't be able to daven in shul with the minion. He can either daven at home earlier at the same time or as a minion, or he can daven in shul later without the minion. So he's asking which is priority. So let's read the Haloch in Shulchan Aruch. This is in Simon Sadik. So first of all, the value of just getting these points in, 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 in place. The Imhu Onus She'ena Yochel, having discussed the virtue of praying in Shul, then he said with a, with a Tzibur, with a, with a congregation, if a person is unable to get to, to this Shul, eventually that's his feeling feeble. Oh, it's not necessarily on the level of bedridden, but he's not, not feeling so uh, energetic. And he's not capable of getting a minion together at home. Then he should try to zone in to pray at the same time when the congregation are praying so you're downing at home because you don't have the energy to go to show but try to daven it means particularly Esther. try to kind of synchronize that you should be davening at the same time as the minion at the congregation in shul because that's an auspicious time and your tefillah, your prayer will not be rejected. It's not the same as davening your shul, but the fact that you are synchronized, you are davening at the same time as the tzibur, your tefillah, your prayer won't be rejected, although it's not at the same level as davening in the shul. So that's one value of davening at the same time as the minion is davening in shul. Then we have a second value. Someone who's local and he didn't manage to get to Shul. He's davening on his own and the Tzibur have davened already. He should still endeavor to daven in Shul. Because this is the location which is designated for communal prayer. And the person's prayer is listened to when it's said in this holy location. As was discussed earlier. Plus, there's a godly presence in the Shul. God is present in the godly congregation. 
he takes the word Eid Adas as in Moyed, the meeting place where Eden are meeting to Darwin, the Kivyochal, the Shechina is there. So now looking at these two expressions, that the shul is a esrot sin and your tefillah is not uh, you're examining at the same time, esrot sin your tefillah isn't rejected. Here he says if you're examining a shul your tefillah is heard. I somehow feel that the language used for davening the value of davening in shul is more powerful. His tefillah is listened to, not just his tefillah isn't rejected, his tefillah is listened to. Um, so that's I'm more inclined to say that davening in shul at a later point is more valuable than davening at home at the same time as the minion. However, in the Piskei Tshuvas, he quotes Reb Shlomo Zalman, who says the opposite. He says here, well, let's start over here. He says um, there is the importance of davening at the same time as the minion. That's not a justification to skip parts of davening to be able to catch up with the minion wherever they may be. It's, but then he says that davening at the same time as the minion is greater than davening in the shul uh, on, on your own. Therefore, he says, it's preferable to pray at home at the time of the shul rather than to daven in the shul on your own when there's no congregation. Now, this is Rabbi Shlomo Salman Oyerbach. It is, I checked it up. In, there's something called Halichos Shlomo. These are like what, was, what we in Lubavitch language would call Hanukkah Bilti Mugi or something, of Talmudim who heard things from him. Um, he doesn't bring any proofs there. And so, all right, I'm, as I say, I'm more inclined the other way around, but whichever way you do your, you know, it, but both of them have got a value, yeah? Okay, let's move on. Um, number two, okay. So here's something, uh, I, as you may know, I had a, a grandson born last Sunday. The bris was meant to have been today. It, it didn't happen because the baby was jaundiced, but uh, Hashem, it'll be Bismane. Whenever it's going to be, it's going to be Bismane. But meanwhile, I've been working on a, on a manuscript from written about, um, it was written about 19, about 1860, in that, in that region, 68, 1880, it's, uh, that's when it was written. And uh, it's a collection, it's about 400 pages of uh, collated from different foreign sources, comments, explanations about filler. So because of the bris, in the imminent bris, I, uh, selected from the manuscript the following. So there was a someone by the name of Sharshavsky who was he uh, this Yudel Sharshavsky was a, a he taught Talmud in a seminar which was uh, under the Maskilim, the Enlightenment, I'm not sure whether it's Kovner, somewhere in the litter. And he challenged the expression which we have at a bris where we say um, we mention, we designate the chair, we say, and then we say, the angel of the covenant, behold, yours is before you. And then we say to, we say, 
stand on my right and support me. So there is a, this uh, Sharshavsky, he has a problem with this language because we shouldn't be praying to Malochim, to angels. This be possibly also, uh, how do you say, colored by the Maloch, the, the Baskilium having a, a problem with anything which they don't really see with their eyes. As we know, even the story with uh, Shimon, Shimon of Zamut, which is also a town in the litter, where Shimon of Zamut comes to Zeladi or Liozna and he he meets the Alter Rebbe. I think it's Titov Kufnun base. And uh, Alter Rebbe asks him about how does he teach the children about when Yitzchok finds out that Akim has taken the brochas and how the Gehenna opens up under his feet and uh, and he says he doesn't want to tell the children frightening things and the Alter Rebbe kind of sussed him out. But this is uh, typical for for the for Maschilim. But they, 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 that, that was his problem. But he professes he has a problem. How can we pray uh, and uh, make an offering to Eliyahu as a mouth? So this the response is written by someone by the name of um, he, he he signs his name as Sarho Adulomi. So I did some research last night. He was a a scholar, more scholar than a Talmud Chochem, as in more like in language, that kind of stuff. His son wrote a sefer, which is very popular in the literature yeshivas, called Marcheshes. But the father was a little bit kind of, so he used his scholarly, his scholarliness to rebut the, the masculine. So he, he fought them on their territory, so to speak. So he says that you that there's this the uh, he explains what's being said over here uh, at the at the bris so he explains at length this as they say it's about 140 years ago 160 years ago he explains at length how in uh, jewish communities there would be at the back of the shul there would be a small passage a small doorway and that was called the milatir and that was where the baby boy would be brought in for the bris and the kvaterin would come to the door on that small on the outside and the kvater would be on the inside and take the baby into the bris. On the back wall they would have a special chair. It was a double seated chair well padded and it was designated for kiseh That would be normally suspended on hooks on the western wall on the back of the show when a bris would be taking place so the shamas would take this chair off the suspended uh, hooks and he would bring it into the middle of the shul where the bris is going to be held take place and the people would stand around so it says in the zohar that's important not only to have a chair for eliyahu but it's important to say to designate this is the chair for eliyahu and this Zohar is quoted in the Shulchan Aruch that is important to designate the chair orally. So what he says is, it is this, the, the Shamas who says his first phrase, that's the Shamas piece. Then the Moyal starts gearing up for his work. And he says, you know, he realizes that he's, it's, a very, it's a risky thing which he's undertaking to do. So he says, Hashem, please Hashem protect me. 
Sibarti Hashem. Hashem. I have hoped, I'm hoping for your salvation. And you're, I, I'm doing your mitzvahs. So he's going to carry out the mitzvah of the bris. Therefore, he says, Now the sandik is now comes over. And he is told you have to sit at this seat. There's two, there's two padded seats, one next to the other. And this, the sandik is obviously uncomfortable to sit on the seat of Eliyahu. So, so he notices there's two seats there. One is for Eliyahu, one is for him. So Eliyahu Malach Abriz, he says he says to the, I'm addressing the Eliyahu. I know you're present here. Here is your chair. I'm not sitting in your chair. I'm sitting next to you. Then the father, then the moil turns to the father who is trembling at the side. He says, well, actually. Come over and stand next to me. Amoid al yamini. Father is the, the father is called by the moil to stand right next to him. Vesomcheni and to empower me. Veloshem smicha endorse me. Give me and as you see many times the, the moil will say will say to the, the father, uh, make me a shliach. So this is what he is saying. Amoid al yamini vesomcheni is not an appeal to Elio Anovi to support. The moil, but rather it's a, it's it's calling the father to stand next to the moil, and to empower the moil. Then the then the sibarti Now the father is now standing, and as I said in trepidation, so he again says sibarti Now this pasuk is not in nusuch chabad, not in the Rebbe's nusuch, but in other nusroys this pasuk is said again. But the first time. As you can see, it's the full pasuk. That's said by the moil because he's going to carry out the mitzvah. The father is not doing the mitzvah personally. Therefore, he just says, I'm hoping, Hashem, I'm hoping for your salvation. Then that's his trepidation. Then he switches to the positive and he says, I'm rejoicing for your statement. As one who's found a great um, spoil, a great um, fortune. So he's his prayer and his his simcha at doing the bris. The kohol respond and they say to In reference to the anxiety of the father, the the community, the congregation present say shalom l'rov Great peace for those who love your Torah. And there will not be a stumbling. So there, he, you're worried about a mistake happening. Um, so it'll be, it'll be okay. And the fact that you are rejoicing, that you are bringing your child into the covenant of Rome, indeed, happy is the one who's chosen and can be brought closer and come closer to Hashem's home. So this is how this Sar uh, Ha'adulomi, how this, uh, how he rebuts the concern, and he explains at length what happened. That originally, this was all done. It was people knew what to, each one knew what to say, and he says they were perhaps it was embroidered on the padding of the chair. This was embroidered, and he did not say who says what. And when the printers later came, the advent of printing, they didn't realize that these are psukim said by different people, 
and therefore they put them all in one stretch and they're all said together. All right, it's interesting um, explanation. Now, just a couple of points here. One is that actually in the Zohar, it says that the Moyol, as far as I remember, the Moyol says, Ashrei Tivchas Korev Yishkoim Khatzirecho, and then the Kohol say, Nizbo'ob Betuv Beisecho Kreshesh In some Sidurim and in some in Hogim, that is observed to this day. Um, in our Siddur, there's no distinction, which is, which is interesting. And um, that's one point. The other point is I want to say that I remember as a child that my father would use, although Asholem was a moil, and there would always be two chairs for the Sandik. And for the for the Sandik and for Leo, two separate chairs. And then at some stage, this changed. And that was because a letter of the Rebbe from winter, Tov Shin Yudalov, um, 1951, well, and then the Rebbe says that he remembers he was at the Bris in Warsaw and then Moyol was a Polisher and he, as far as he remembers that there was one chair. Okay. Now, just about 17 years ago, Yeshua Monshai, my cousin, sent me, I, my, that was when my first grandson was born and he sent me something which he found in my grandfather's files in his archives. My, my grandfather was a moil in, in Edsisrael and in Eeyore, Tovshin Yud Aleph, about three months after that letter of the Rebbe, my uncle David, who was a bochel in New York, he writes to my Zayda in Edsisrael that today there was a bris by a grandson of Eli Yeichel, that's Rabbi Rosenfeld, who runs the seminary in Svaz, that was he was born then, and the Rebbe was the Sandik, and the Moyol wanted to use one chair, and the Rebbe said to use two chairs, because that's how it's mashed, mashed, mashed. I remember in, in the Shalom or something, I, I can look it up. The Rebbe, in other words, contrary to what the Rebbe had written a few months earlier, that he's more inclined to say that it should be one chair. The Rebbe himself, when he was signing, he says there should be two chairs. So that, that's, that's you know, I, I, I would, when I, when someone asks me, I tell them to use two chairs. Now, what I know that Rebbe Eli Lando, who lives in Bnei Brak and is an uh, active moil, as well as many other wonderful things. So he's, his take on this is to have two chairs, but then to cover them with a blanket or something, in that way that the two chairs are kind of connected as one, which now having read this whole article from 140 years ago, 160 years ago, describing the Kisashel Elio as it was common in, in, in Elita, in Belarus, etc., to have a, 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 a double-seated chair and two, clearly two separate pads to separate one for Elio and one for the, for the, for the Sandig. So it kind of ties in. So if you don't have a special Kisashel Elio, but then to have to have two chairs and one chair kind of kind of in one. All right. So enough discussion of that for the moment. I'm sure we'll get some feedback on that. But, um, okay. Let's move on. So someone was asking one of our listeners in the United States is asking about walking in front of a 
sensor, which is going to switch on, switch lights on. And now it's very common in, in buildings, apartment buildings, uh, that they have lights which go on as you go in and out. And what's the story for Shabbos? So what's, what you have on the screen is from Rav Padve, and from Rav Ozna. But they're not talking about lights in buildings. They're look, talking about lights on the street, where someone would put up a light sensor as deterrent for thieves. And when you pass and walk in the street, then you sometimes activate those lights. And that's what they are uh, addressing here. So he writes here, this is I'll read Ravosner, they both say some they similar stuff. If you're just walking innocently, and you're not as if you're doing anything in order to cause a malacha to happen, and it just happens, so long as you have no intention to go to this point in order to activate the light, then that's not called a malacha. And he says, um, it's not malacha at all. Okay. And don't compare this to doors which are activated by sensors with an electric eye, because there, of course, you want the consequence, you, you want the result and that the door should open for you, and that's not allowed. Here, you're just walking on your merry way, and there's a, a sensor which is picking up. You have no interest in it at all, so that's so that's okay. And I, I think he does say well, that's talking about where um, you have no. You know, he doesn't say here necessarily where you have no option. I think Rapadva does say that. If it's difficult for you to avoid using that route, then you are allowed to use that route. So that's that's the basic position. That uh, if you if if you, if that's the only route you can get to or from your destination or your home, etc., then you're allowed to pass by so long as you don't. Now, having said that, I've been asked this question several times. What about someone who wants to buy or rent a place in a building? And in that building, there are sensors. So he asks, is it okay for me to move into this building where I'm going to have to be activating sensors every Shabbos? So it's certainly not It's not an advisable setup. Problem is that some, you know, that like we all know, sometimes it's very difficult to find accommodation in bigger cities. Uh, it's very difficult to find something. So it's not, it's not a lechatchila. Then, in inside a, in I'm going going inside a, a, the corridor, to say that I don't care for the light going on or not, well, I actually had the uh, experience. I was somewhere in Switzerland, in someone's in, a, in, a, in an apartment building, and there it wasn't with sensors; it was with push buttons. By every floor, there's a button to push to activate, and I walked down the stairs in pitch black. And I missed a stair, fell over. Baruch Hashem, I survived, but um, it, it, it was it, it was dangerous, yeah. And so a little bit of light is actually very important to have. So to say I don't need the light is is not really true. You do need that light. So if there is in the corridor minimal security lights, 
this like a small glow. And then when you pass by, then activates the bigger light. So as far as safety is concerned, your, your, your safety concerns are addressed already by the minimal light. The comfort, the extra light was okay, that's that's uh, that's um, that, that's that, that can be ignored. You can see I don't need it. But if it's pitch black, so then what happens if Itaka is pitch black? There is no extra security light. So sometimes I've and people are in this such a situation where I advise them to put up their own battery operated lantern out in the corridor, if possible, in that way. They have a minimal amount of light, and then they can ignore the the uh, the sensors going on. I've also been told this I've, I haven't checked out myself that if you walk very slowly, then the, it's not going to activate the sensors. But that I haven't checked out. Someone's telling me that the chief rabbi was staying in Buckingham Palace last Shabbos. They provided a servant to walk in front of him to trigger the lights. Okay, fine. Yeah, very well. Let's move on. Let's move on. There's a separate discussion about using electric uh, electric keys, which you touch a pad and it opens the door. These electronic pads, that's uh, that's that's more complicated because there you mamish. On the other hand, there's no fire happening. I remember once we had a conversation with Rav Padver, and he was trying to be Mati with a Kalachayad. Let's, let's move on. So someone this week asks me, can you give me a little bit of background about the difference in the way we wrap our tefillin as a wrap around the arm, where there's a difference between Ashkenaz and Sfard, Chsidim, etc. Interesting, the Ger Chsidim, they keep to the Ashkenaz minhig of turning the their suis inwards rather than the minhigasfard, which is turning the suis outwards. So this is you have here, you have in the Mishtabrura in Simuchov Zayin. The Altarebbe doesn't even address this, as far as I can see. But meanwhile, he says that the Rabbi Yaakov ben Chaviv, who was the Rebbe of the Bishyosuf, he says that the kasher needs to be on the inside of the tefillin, closer to the heart. But where the ritzuah goes into the loop, that, that, is, that is beyond, like further away from the heart. And that's the, that's the uh, Sfarad style, that you've got the loop is where the ritzuah goes through, is on the far side, so to speak, of the tefillin. And then they do a what we call a U-turn and pull it down. And as a result, they are rotating the, the, the straps outwards. The Darke Moshe says it's actually better that the loop where the tefillin strap goes through is going to be also on the inside near the heart along with the Kesher. So that, and that he also quotes the Halachas Gdolas, that the tying should be close to the heart. And it gives another reference. So we've got here two, two paths, two web methods, whether the the loop is on the far side or the loop is on the inside. Well, the advantage of the Sfarad style is that the Yud, as in the Kesher, the knot of the Shalyad, because it's being pulled, the, the pull is away from the body, so that's pulling the knot towards the 
towards the uh, box of the tefillin. And it's very strong language in the Zohar that the yud of the knot should not separate, be separated from the box of the tefillin. So the Sfarad style is pulling the knot closer to the, to the box. The Ashkenaz style has the advantage that the uh, tightening is closer to the heart. Okay, so these are the two sides of it. Now, in Chabad style, we have both advantages together because we have the knot is on the inside and we tighten it there. So we have, and then we, then we work outwards. So we, we're, we're tightening the, as we wrap the, we make the first shin on the arm, we're actually tightening the kesha, the yud, to the bias. Uh, in, I have seen Ashkenaz tefillin where the soifer has made with a uh, gid, with a sinew, he made a string to tie the knot to the, to the bias, because otherwise it would be pulling away. So these are advantages for either way. There's another aspect here, which before Shem say, that we have a style in halacha, that whenever you turn, you should turn to the right. So when you are relevant to Hanukkah, etc. So when you are turning the tefillin inwards, so you are actually turning from the left to the right, from your left arm towards your right. Whereas if you're going outwards, you're going from the right to the left. Then he quotes here from the Kute Mahariya. But actually, you know, when we write Hebrew, we are starting from the right of the page and we are walking and we're writing moving towards the left of the page. And since tefillin, we have a kashartom or chasavtom, that the tying of the tefillin is compared to the writing. So since in writing, you go from right to left, and therefore it's also okay for the tying to go from the right to left. But then, so the, here you're seeing the different views. And as I said, just the meaning asfardim is to tie outwards. And ger, in this respect, in this aspect, they have clung to the Minigashkinas. Someone is saying here that Rabbi Shlema Zalman said, I mean, probably means Shlema Chaim. Um, said that if I bring in that Misnagrim wrap inwards towards themselves, and Mechsidim wrap, thinking about someone else, that's why you're wrapping outwards. Yeah, that's, I've heard that before. That's obviously more of their Chatzachas, but here we're talking about in Ahalocha. So this is the, this is the background. Um, the advantage of, you know, of making the tightening closer in, that's the advantage of Ashkenaz and Chabad also have that. The advantage of Menusach Svar is that you are pulling the knot to, or to be touching the bias. And again, that you have so in Chabad, you're in Chabad style, you're actually having the best of both. Um, not only in this, in many things, but fine. Let's move on. So someone asked me about piercing a carton or a sachet. Well, you can see the sachets over here uh, of a drink. And it's, it's, got a, it's made of a thicker plastic, but at, there's a particular point where the plastic has got a hole and inside there's a bit of silver foil, probably also a little bit of plastic also, but much thinner. And it comes along with a straw, if they still exist in the British Isles, and you... Uh, you, you better push it through. And so, I, and the, this is also true with the small cartons, like the mini 
um, orange juices, etc., apple juices. So are you allowed to open those as showers to put the now to explain what the shaila is here? There's a Mishnah Shabbos, and it talks about a barrel which has got dates, and it says Shrever Odomchovis. A person is allowed to break open this barrel in order to he wants to say to his guests, come and enjoy the stuff inside. He shouldn't have intention to make a neat opening. So that's the that's the you know the, the, the idea that you shouldn't be making a neat opening. And that's why, for example, to tear open, you know, where the cartons, the bigger cartons, where the more should I say unsophisticated ones, it says you should pick up the fold over and then you has a dotted line it says tear here along this dotted line well to do that on shabbos is not okay because you are making a neat opening and i'm sure you have had the experience of a not of a messy opening and then that's a schooler for having orange juice all over the tablecloth so making a neat opening would not be okay that's the mission it says so here this was this is the kind of the question is this considered making a neat opening and here we have from Raforkash he's got published four sforim on Hilchas Shabbos and the fourth volume has a whole chapter about opening containers etc etc and so he writes the following there are drinks drink cartons and they have a hole and it has silver foil and when you want to drink, you pierce the silver foil with a straw or something. So he says you are allowed to do so on Shabbos. And then he goes, he says, all right, then, then he talks about other things, but fine. So Raforkas says it is okay. And I guess he's taking the view that this is not a neat opening. And uh, all right, so there, there you have a header, fine. The common question is about dishwashers when you find the utensils of one type in, in the other in the other side in the it's a milking in the fleshic fleshic in the milking now i know that there's soap in the dishwasher but apparently the first couple of minutes there is a stream of boiling hot water without soap and that's where i'm worried so again many times people ask me to mix up in the sink and my first question to them is, did you use washing up soap? And if that's the case, then I can relax because there's a concept called tam pogum, moisten tam lifgam, a taste which is tainted, does not make, an unpleasant taste does not make things strafe. Therefore, dishes which are mixed up in a bowl of, of, of hot water with, with soap is not such a problem. But yeah, but I'm not talking, we're not recommending this, we're talking about but yeah, but it's not a trip, not doesn't make a trip. The problem here is that let's say you had a, a, a knife which had been used for cutting pizza and it's got cheese on it, and next to it there's a spoon which was used for, for um, gravy, and they're both next to one another, and then there's a hot shower which makes a shidduch between the two. That's that's where the problem is. Right. So let's so the, the, what I have here on the screen. It's for a safer called Pesokim Shuvas. Now, I've mentioned many times Piskei Shuvas, and that's on Arachayim. And his son-in-law has, has done a similar kind of work on Yeridea, several several sections. 
and just the last few years, very useful. And he writes the following. If fleshika, milkika dishes were washed in the dishwasher one after the other, um, ask a shayla, generally it's not a problem. If, they, if you had meat and milky dishes washed up in the same time, um, and there wasn't 60 times in the water against the kalim, then they should have hagolim. Uh, but he says, if they are kalim which cannot be cashed with the boiling water, like porcelain, in the middle of the shear now, So then you can be makal that the kalim did not become asr. So again, if it's cutlery, so the recommendation would be to kasha. If a fleshika um, a knife was, was found in the milchika dishwasher, so all right, kasha it, no, 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 no big loss. If it's, if it's um, porcelain or china or whatever, which cannot be kashered, then we're going to rely on on various uh, arguments to say that perhaps because of the soap, perhaps because of the um, that it's klisheni, whatever. There's going to be various cheshvonas, but the evid, it's 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 going to be okay. Right. Let's move on. So someone asks me, do you does a married man in Chabad? make a brocha on the talus cotton. So before I got married, I would wear, I would hand a talus cotton, I would switch it in the morning and make a brocha on the talus cotton. But once I got married, so then I would make a brocha on the talus every morning. And I didn't make a brocha on this, on the smaller tzitzis, on the talus cotton, because I'm making a brocha on the, on the talus. To explain a little bit more, the Nusach HaBrocha, we've got in, in the Tilas Hashem Siddur, we've got a Nusach HaBrocha, Al Mitzvah Sitzis, and a Brocha, Lehisatev Sitzis. In the original Alter Rebbe's Siddur, it does not have the Brocha, Al Mitzvah Sitzis. There's no Brocha for Tal's Cotton. And this goes back actually hundreds of years earlier, where the, the Rabbi Yosef Karo he doesn't have a bracha of al mitzvah tzitzis. In the Gemara, there's a bracha and to the point that there are goinim who say, "Aha, you see, you have to do atifo, and that's why we, when we put on the talus, we wrap around." But this nusach bracha of al mitzvah tzitzis didn't it's not mention the Gemara. It's first mentioned about perhaps seven hundred years ago, whatever. It's it's a relatively recent innovation. So when you have no option because you're not going to do wrapping because your talus cotton is too small to wrap. So then the words mentioned Hayyim Yoim. Um, so then you'd make a brocha al mitzvah tzitzis. But if you are going to make the brocha lehisate tzitzis, so then include the talus cotton with your brocha on your talus cotton. So I mentioned this before, I think, on this um, uh, shear that on Friday afternoon, I go to mikveh, so I take with a change of clothing and I take with a, ta a talus cotton, especially for Shabbos. Like everything else is changed for Shabbos, so the talus cotton is also a special one for Shabbos. And I'm not going to wear a talus afterwards. So then on Friday afternoon, I can make a brocha on the new talus cotton, I make a brocha al mitzvah sitzes. 
But other than that, I don't. And uh, this is my understanding, but there are those who have disputed this. And they're saying that where you read in Hayyam Yom, it's only talking about if you had put on your task right away, but if it's a long interval between putting on the tzitzis in the morning, you should make a bracha on the tzitzis. Okay, so now I'm going to read here, someone sent to me this article, this piece from the article in Kfar This is talking about the, the late Rav Chadukov and where he goes into Yechidus, in, to the Frida Kerebbe, just before his chasana. And one of the things discussed in the Yechidus was about wearing a tal's cotton when, you, when sleeping. So Kharakov says to the Rebbe, it's now several years that he's, he's accustomed to wear a tal's cotton when he's sleeping. Now just bear in mind, Rabbi Kharakov was not from a Chabad background, and therefore, whereas Chassidim wear a tal's cotton when he's sleeping, it's not so common by, by uh, non-Chassidim, and therefore, that was, I guess, part of the discussion. And Rabbi Chalikov is saying that it's now several years that he wears a talskot when he goes to sleep. The Rebbe asks him, what do you do about a bracha? So Rabbi Chalikov answered that I don't make a bracha, I guess, because he was using the same tzitzis day and night. And therefore, it's not a new garment, so you can't make a bracha. So the Rebbe says to him, Shehaminig etzloi, the minig, which, which means that by, by his minig is, to remove the, before sleeping, to remove the tal's cotton of the daytime and to sleep with another one, a nighttime one, in order that you shouldn't have a dilemma whether to make a brach in the morning. And the reason why you wear tal's cotton at night is not to be um, naked without a mitzvah of tzitzis. Now, this is how it's wrote in the Prachabad. Now, if you read this article, you get the impression that the Rebbe is saying to him, that his meaning is to change his telescotton every night. To switch over for a night and for a day. Now, the same article is written in an, a tshuro, like a diary which was published by the Kharakov family for a family wedding going back 22 years ago. And it's published, it's called um, Ateris Kanim, and it has the same yechidus. Now let's read this in the in the uh, the other version. I told the Rebbe that it's been several years, many years, that I've been sleeping with a tal's cotton. The Rebbe asked me, "What do I do about the brocha on the tal's cotton?" So I said, "I don't make a brocha." So he said to me, "Etzlom hagin." By them, they used to have the custom to switch the tal's cotton by night from a different one. Now, there's just this just very minor change here. Etzlom hoyunagin or haminig etzloihu. Very they seem to be minimal, but it's very different, different wording. One is saying his personal minig, the other one is saying this was our custom. You are a, a bocher before you're married. And when I was a bocher, the minig which we had, the Chabad back in Lubavitch, was that they would they switch the task cotton. For night. So just those words are slightly different. And so at Slomo that does not mean that Ingeman has to switch his tiles cotton every night. And I can still remain with the mythic of of uh Ingeman. Once he's making a brochantiles godl, he doesn't have this worry. Does he go make a brochantiles cotton? 
someone is, is clarifying, Rabbeidu, I think, Rabbi Chadakov was born in Beshenkovich. His father was a Chosid, but his Chinuch was not Chabad because the family's and father's company relocated him to Latvia. Okay, so he was brought up in Latvia, and therefore he didn't necessarily, it, was, it wasn't a given that he would be wearing a Talskot on Wednesday. Okay, so that's a bit of clarification on that. Let's move on. So here on Friday, someone's asking me, his wife is going to stay overnight in hospital with a child. And so she's able, she's able to go in and out. The question is, what does she do about Nadeth Shabbos? So she's asking, perhaps she should light at home and then get into the car and then come to show in a light and home al-tanai, not Merkabal Shabbos. She can light at a friend who lives near the hospital. She can ask someone to light uh, candles for her in another house, asking whether any of those things are advisable. So now let's read this. And this is based upon a Loshan Gemara about lighting candles on Erev Shabbos, not to light too early and not to light too late. So not to light too early. If you're going to light too early, so then it's not evident that you're lighting the covered Shabbos. Obviously, lighting too late is, is, is risking kill Shabbos. If you do want to light early and you want to be Mechabal Shabbos, then that's okay. Because you are Makabal Shabbos right away, that's not called Lahaktim. Again, if you're lighting early, and he says, provided it's after Plagamincha, so you can light early if you are Makabal Shabbos. So then your lighting is associated with Kabbalah Shabbos. But if you're going to light candles and then you're going to go and continue doing the laundry or whatever it may be, so then it's that's what the Gemara says, loyaktim. Don't do it too early because you're not ready to be in Kabbalah Shabbos. And that's in Sivor, the later Siv Zion, the Alter Rebbe goes back to this and he says, the Divra HaKoyl, Sorech Shia Kabbalah Shabbos, Lealter Achahad Locker. Lighting, even though you can light in circumstances where the condition not to accept Shabbos, but it has to be that shortly thereafter, you're going to be in Kabbalah Shabbos. You're going to cease from Loch, either yourself or someone else in the family, someone is going to accept Shabbos shortly after this lighting. So if this woman is wants to so for her to go into the car after lighting, not be Mikabal Shabbos, well, yes, if someone's going to stay home and be Mikabal Shabbos as a result, that would be a possibility. But if there's no one Mikabal Shabbos, so for her to get into the car and it's going to be 20 minutes drive, then she cannot light Shabbos candles at home. Now, how long is the altar? So the altar Rebbe in the Kuntras Achrin has much less than a quarter of an hour. And Chaim Noah says approximately 10 minutes. So that's the general guidance. If you want to be Mechabal, if you want to light candles and not Mechabal Shabbos, because you want to get into the car or something, if it's 10 minutes or less between, you know, from here to, to your destination, that would be okay, but it's significantly longer, then that would not be an option. Now, then, the other option about lighting at another home. So what's, what's the point of going to another home and lighting? It's, it's Ke'ilu, 
uh, as if you're saying I have to uh, give an offering of light of candles for Shabbos. It's no offering here. It's it's not a korban. It's a dinner of, of, of lighting up and giving giving uh, giving an atmosphere to the place which you're going to be for Shabbos. So lighting in someone else's house and going away doesn't really make sense to me. Um, and certainly to ask, oh, someone, can you light some like extra candles in your house because I'm uh, I'm in the hospital? It's it, it doesn't have any uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. What I said is make a bracha on the electric. In the, you're going to be with your child in the hospital before before Shabbos. You'll switch on the electric lights, and you can make a bracha on the electric lights. And generally, of course, that's not the recommended thing. We do to keep to the traditional lights, but if there's no option other than lighting, uh, no other option of lighting a naked flame, so then you can make a bracha on electric light. I mentioned this before that Rabbi Shimon himself, when he was in hospital, so uh, he made a bracha on the fluorescent light, which is next to his bed. And he said he says that to other people, and he, he did say himself too. Let's move on. So here's a question about a man lighting Shabbos candles. So someone's asking, is there a point in him covering his eyes when he lights the candles? So why is and at first I think well, I mean, it's not imperative for a man to be Mikabal Shabbos, but really, what's the reason for covering the eyes? when um, saying the bracha so the, the the explanation is basically that normally a bracha is said before the act of the mitzvah is done and that's the svardim indeed they make the bracha before lighting the shabbos candles the ashkenazim have gotten they're anxious that the bracha is a kind of declaration of the kabbalah shabbos so therefore they leave the bracha for after the lighting but on the other hand how do you accommodate the bracha is before the before the act, so the answer explanation is that benefiting from the light—that's the main thing, not the act of lighting, but the appreciating the light. So they make the the they light it and cover their eyes, make the bracha, and then open the eyes. Oh, it's light and appreciate the light. That is the explanation of why Midik Ashkenaz is to cover the eyes, and there for saying the bracha. Now, if that's the case, if a man is lighting and he's making the bracha after having lit, so it's the same thing. He wants to make it a bracha over last year's son. And if he, once it's done and the lights are open, what's he making a bracha on? So he covers his eyes. Now, the, but the more, how do you say, basic question, is it imperative for a man to, to make the bracha after the lighting, like a woman does, since this idea that Kabbalah Shabbos comes along with the bracha, but men are not necessarily Mikabal Shabbos. This is a, a woman's thing, she's Mikabal Shabbos with the bracha. But a man's thing is possibly because men go to shul, etc. could be whatever the explanation is. But it's not imperative that a man's Mikabal Shabbos with lighting. So why shouldn't a man be making the bracha before? Make the bracha, and then you light it to finish. So this, now Reb Chaim Noah, he's reading into the Alter Rebbe that a man should also make the bracha after lighting, like a woman. Uh, and which, what I have on the, on the screen here is from Reb Nissen David Dubov's book on, on candle lighting. But actually, this is the same in various recent Chabad works, where they have the same reservation. It's not so evident that 
the Alter Rebbe holds, because when the Alter Rebbe says about this minute of making the bracha after lighting, he switches to the feminine. And it possibly he's just talking about the minig of women, but necess not necessarily in the case of men. So I, I gave this over on Friday night, and someone asked, what would you do? Therefore, I, I was only in that position. So I said, I would actually say the bracha after lighting, and I'll tell you why. The late Rav Ashkenazi took the view that whilst you can light uh, candles for Shabbos on condition or not to accept, but if you say Kodesh, you add the word Kodesh, Kodesh is the expression of Kabbalah Shabbos. And once you say Shabbos Kodesh, it doesn't help to make a condition. That was his, his he, that was his approach. And um, therefore, if I'm going to use the Chabad Nusach of Kodesh, then I would do all Malacha before and be Mikabal Shabbos do. Um, which is also an interesting order. What about if there is a case? Where someone wants to get light, light al tonight and then get, get into the car, then perhaps they should be keeping to the Veltishan or something, just in and not add the word Kodesh because of this vote of Rabash Knazi. Possibly, I did not look it up recently, possibly in the his this forum Sharit Philominic, possibly he addresses this in detail. Right, right. We have now just one, two points left. And one is. First, in fact, you know, we had a discussion of why is Ovalotzian said at Mincha on Shabbos. So the Mayor Zirkin brought to my attention this a sefer called Tanya Rabsi or Tanya Rabosi. It's uh, one of the late Rishonim and um, about filler, etc. And he says the after that it used to be that after davening there would be a sheer people would learn. And Nevi'im, etc., and then they would learn a Mishnah and Talmud, and then when poverty became more rampant, and people couldn't afford to spend so long after Shmonesra to start learning Torah for such a long time, so therefore they kind of made a minimum. You know what? We'll just say Tup Sukim Sion which is like a little bit of a kind like of reading a bit of Torah. And so that was like the, the mini shear after, after Shmoines. Now, on Shabbos and Yom Tov, where people are not going to work, well, then we can keep to the learning Torah. We have a whole Kriyasa Torah. And Kriyasa Torah, as you know, in, used to be translated into Aramaic between each Posuk. You might take Manim still that to, to, until today. And therefore, this is, now this is the point, point which I found so interesting. We don't need to do a volatzion at Shachris and Shabbos and Yom Tov. The volat siyoin is to make up for the shear, but we've got the shear, we've got Chris Atoyer. So we don't have to say oh, to Psukim, we've got a whole, whole Chris Atoyer. That's why a volat is not said at Shachris and Yomtu and Shabbos and Yomtu, because you have a whole Chris Therefore, instead, but it's said at Mincha, it's said at Mincha, because not to miss it out altogether. Now, he points out also, Rev May pointed out that on Yom Kippur, we don't say a volatzin at mincha. Whenever we have a haftoira, we won't say a volatzin then. Because if the, if the idea of haftoira is to read psukim from Novi, so then when you're doing an actual haftoira, you don't have to say a volatzin. 
So uh, uh, indeed, at Mincha on, on Yom Kippur, we don't say Valsin. Instead, we have it at Ne'ilah, which I find a very interesting uh, ha'ara. Coming back to the previous thing, if a man lights, does he cover his eyes? So again, if you're going to first light and then say the bracha, then you should cover your eyes. If you're going to first say the bracha and then light, then you don't need to cover your eyes. And I'm more inclined to say that you do it just like you saw your mother doing and your wife doing, etc. You light and then you say the bracha. That's what Rabbi Noah says, and, uh, although there are arguments the other way around. One last thing, and that is, we had our discussion about Sudashlishis, is the Rebbe's Fabrengen, um, Sudashlishis or Sudashniyo, etc. So Rabbi Srol Noyach Vogel, who's an old classmate of mine, he heard the recording, he says he looked up his diaries his, uh, from the Rebbe's Fabrengen, and Shabbos B'Shalach Tov Shin Memvov, there were many bottles of you know, mashka which the Rebbe gave out to people. And when the Rebbe finished giving out to everyone, and by the way, I'm, I underlined the word Bashalach because that's where the parasha where we talk about the mon talks about, um, yeah, that's the basis of the Sudashlishis. At any rate, uh, the Rebbe finished, then he finished his cup, which is uh, all filled with Smirnov. And after the Rebbe had his drink, a full cup of Smirnov, then he started coughing. A lot, and people felt very uncomfortable. What can they do? And the Rebbe told Rabbi Mentlik to fill up his cup with wine, and everyone's looking. And then the Rebbe turns to Rabbi Khan and tells him no, and he says, And at that point, the Rebbe had the glass of wine, finished the cup of wine, and then more or less finished his the coughing, uh, calmed down. And it came to the last bit of the nigan uh, of Ibnechola, they were thinking of singing over again. So they're being indicated with his hand, they should sing over again, and they sang it with Chayas. Okay, that's the story of Shalach Tovshim Envov. I'm not sure that that's when I was there. At any rate, then Remendi Wilhelm, who was in a shliach in, in uh, he's a shliach in, in uh, Ungvar, in, in, in Lithuania, in, in Ukraine. His wife is Paris from here, from, from Stamford Hill. So he says there was a, he, he's a bit of a back, another information. There was a Yid from Eshelayim, not a Chassid. For some reason, he had to be in Crown Heights for that Shabbos. He was curious, he was keen, where can you have a Shabbos meal? Most people would, wouldn't eat a Shabbos meal because going to those for bringing. They sorted out they should go by someone who, have a meal by someone who eats the Shabbos meal before the Fabrengen. But then he had a problem with Sudashlishis. He told him, we can't help you. After the Fabrengen, they said to him, you see, in your merit, there was a, a mini Sudashlishis because the Rebbe had an extra cup of, of, of wine and he told him to sing obviously it was to be more to you that you should have the Sudashlishis. Uh, he then, Bishon Noyach, sent a, a message to a, a certain group. I just find this fascinating how these people are or, or who know all this information. Uh, do you remember when the Rebbe had sang B'nechol at the Fabreng? Besides, you discussed the Tafish design, and so Rabbi Merzelikson says it was several times the Rebbe left the Fabrengen as they were singing this Nigan. Uh, Semachnotic writes, Shabbos Bracious, the Rebbe uh, put in his glasses and they were singing Lechol, also Shabbos Shuvah, the second Fabrengen, and Shabbos Bracious, Tovshin and Dalad. Then Yossel Librov says, Shabbos Mishpotim Tovshin Mimches. And that's the week after the Rebbeson passed away. And I was there for that Shabbos. Perhaps it was that Shabbos I was there. And then Michal Zelikson says, Hazino, um, Shabbos, Tovshin of Zain, it was a Hazino, and that Shabbos Shuva, Shabbos Breshis, Kedoshim, Aloischa. 
and Tovshin Lamed Aleph in Parshas Tiso, and in Vayelech in Tovshin Lamed Beis, and um, many other times. And Yossi Lu says it wasn't in Parsha in Iri of Tismach. So listen, uh, it's on, it was all on Shabbos, so there's no recording. So uh, whatever. So I just I find it fascinating how people have got this uh, you know, record of all the details of when it was, but it was uh, apparently not so rare. But okay. All right, I hope you enjoyed that, and I'll wish you all a good night, and we should have Mr. Tavis Cotter. Thank you. Thank you.